Hey everybody, the next panel we have for you in our Necronomicon series is Fabulism in Contemporary Weird Fiction. Fabulism has been a constant thread throughout the history of horror and weird fiction, and many writers have been more openly showcasing it in their work. The panel that follows explores this phenomenon, its history, and its current use with several contemporary writers who have themselves embraced fabulism as a driving factor in their own work. Hope you enjoy! Hey everybody, this is John, and this is Vince, and you're listening to Legends of Tabletop, creating legends one die at a time. Alright, let's get started. Oh my god. Um, thank you all for coming to a 9am Sunday morning panel, the <laughs> toughest time slot at any convention. Yes, it's 9 o'clock. And it's um, against the prayer breakfast too. That's right. There will be no fears at this us down. channel. <laughs> what happens at the prayer breakfast? I just met We'll talk later. Um, this is the Fabulism in Contemporary Weird Fiction panel. So if you're here for the prayer breakfast, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> well, we'll try to be inspirational. You can yeah. pray we'll to us. We'll, we'll do our best. Um, I guess we'll start with some introductions. My name is Simon Strancis. I am uh, primarily a writer. I've written about four collections of short fiction. I've also edited a few books, one of them being The Year's Best Weird Fiction 3, available in the dealer room now. Um, I guess we'll just work down the line. I'm J.T. Glover, uh, often go by John. I'm a writer of short fiction. I publish short stories here and there, anthologies, uh, magazines. I have some people come in The Year's Best Horror, or Best in Horror, excuse me. Uh, I'm also an academic research librarian and study weird fiction as well. Well, no. <laughs> um, I'm Nettie Okorafor. I am a professor at the University of Buffalo of Creative Writing and Literature, and also a novelist who writes weird things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Craig Gidney. I'm a writer. I have two collections out. Um, that's about it. Oh, um, <laughs> my, 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 my name is Peter Straub. I ask you to withhold your applause, please. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a writer primarily, a novelist, so I've written like five collections of short stories. My first uh, appearance here at this convention, is, I gotta say, it's a barrel of laughs and a lot of fun. I'm glad to be here. Agreed, except for the five collection. I'm Kish Johnson, and I write everything sooner or later, but mostly I write short more than long. And I also um, teach uh, creative writing at the University of Kansas, where I'm the Associate Director for the Center for the Study of Science Fiction, which I bet you didn't even know was a thing. <laughs> All right, so since we're talking about fabulism, I thought we'd start with uh, talking about what exactly we mean by fabulism. Um, to me, it seems like it's one of those amorphous categories where uh, most writers and critics and editors, they know it when they see it. So maybe you can distill fabulism here for the uninitiated and uh, come to some sort of communal agreement. So go down the line. <laughs> there we go with the definitions again. 
Here we go. Here we go. Never sit next to the moderator. Right. Find your roller skates, dude. I think fabulism is often sort of more of a mode than a specific genre. You can have stories that have this sense of remove from ordinary life. Something that has less to do with the realism or naturalism uh, that we so often see with these fixed details that writers are so often told to insert into their fiction and create the sense of realism. Uh, there, there may be folks down the line who have opinions about whether capitalism derives directly from the tradition of fables and you know, grims and so on and so forth. Uh, but I think there are plenty of people working today who work in the mode, work in the field without the specific roots that they're drawing on. Uh, I almost want to just say skip me because you know when when I hear fabulism it's it's often associated with fantasy I I um, and fables as well Um, I have no definition for it I mean when I when I see it I tend to read it Um, I like it Um, I don't really know Uh, there's so many so many angles you can come in it from. Um, I've seen it where it's it's it seems to be a specific type of fantasy that derives from fables. I've seen it defined as as um, um, stories that are that that are about fa- that are retold fables. So I don't really know, and and that's okay. So yeah, go ahead. You could, I'm sure you have a better answer. Well, I don't know about that, but I would consider um, someone like um, Kelly Link to be a fabulist, um, even though she, it doesn't really derive from fables. Mm-hmm. There's, it seems that fabulism to me is something that is real but twisted. That's kind of the way I sort of see it. So I'd say Kelly Link, Amy Bender, um, I would say also fabulism is kind of, it has its roots in Latin American magical realism, that it's kind of connected to it in How some ways. How is it ways. different though? This is... Because it's not as uh, connected to the political landscape, I don't think. Uh, I think magical realism is a political statement, or tends to be a slightly different sort of thing. We can talk about it. Okay, good. Uh, well, all that was uh, very educational. I, um, I tend to think of fabulism as a very, very fuzzy set, a very generous term that incorporates a good deal of uh, other other terms. Let's say slipstream is, is the only one that comes yeah. to my poor, weak mind at the moment. But, but um, our writing is filled with things like with people who are identifying under a label, but all those labels are connected un, un, underneath them in their, um, let, let's say, I could say defiant approach to realism, but I prefer to say a generous approach to realism, that is, it incorporates a great deal into the real of what we sometimes think of as not real, as irrational or uh, impossible. Um, it is... Uh, useful and metaphorical, useful and uh, straightforward, direct from the heart, uh, push down the accelerator kind of narrative, and also it, it's suited for uh, more dreamlike, meandering, uh, 
poetic, to use the misuse of the word, kind, kind, kind of work. I, however, am here because of, a, I think, because of an anthology, an issue of uh, issue of an, an, an issue of the journal Conjunctions that I edited some years back, um, issue 39 of Conjunction, and it wound up being published, uh, being issued under the title "The New New Wave Fabulous." Yeah, New Wave Fabulous. I beg you. Do not take that very seriously. <laughs> um, when Bradford, I had other tight titles for this issue. I didn't think of it as fabulous because I, I wasn't thinking that way. I was thinking of a very, very burgeoning um, literary style and approach that I saw all over the place. I'm glad somebody introduced Kelly Link because she was a, a you know gold star example of the same. Um, and. I associate fabulism with where I first came across the word in a book by Robert Scholes, and it referred to work to novels by Robert Coover, John Barth, John Hawkes, uh, and, and, and the kind of avant-garde um, world that, that, that surrounded them or supported them. Uh, Brad didn't know that the word fabulous and fabulous and fabulism has been uh, discussed and argued over and fought over in science fiction for years and years. And so he just stuck it on like a label and then everybody said, oh, these stories are fabulous. I was gonna call it this amuse Neil Gaiman, no end. I, <laughs> I, I wanted to refer to all this as a, natural, a naturally occurring phenomenon. So I was thinking, it's like an underground river. And then I was thinking, no, it's way too visible to be an underground river, all these writers. Uh, they're more like a mountain. But they're more like a mountain if you can't see, you can't see if you're looking straight ahead. So <laughs> the, the brilliant uh, poetic <laughs> solution to this that I proposed to Bradford Morrow was, let's call it the mountain behind the other mountain. And, 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 and when I said this on a panel with, in Madison, Wisconsin with Neil Gaiman, Neil, Neil shuddered to a halt in whatever he was saying and said, Peter, to me, I could have been part of a literary movement called the mountain behind the other mountain. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had our chances, all I can say. Anyhow, I feel a bit as though I'm here under false pretenses. <laughs> However, I know I have uh, deep con connections to what we are now referring to as fabulism, and which seems to me to be um, intrinsically connected to the category that uh, the brilliant John Clute um, a science fiction critic calls Fantastica, uh, meaning it's like porn, you know. What? Uh, the, the, you know the, the, the famous definition of porn, you know it when you see it. Okay. You know right. what? I was wondering where you're going. Doing like that. Okay. You know what's when you see it. So that's all I got to say. <laughs> Um, actually, I think that the, the new wave, uh, the new wave, fabulous or whatever, that's exactly to the point of what I was thinking. The problem with, I mean, one of the problems is categorizational terms like like fabulism. We use it very sloppily to mean one thing, and then very we try to use it precisely, and people are never quite clear about whether you're using it casually to mean fantasy, or whether you're using it in a very specific and precise way. But um, and that's the risk of this stuff. But the, I feel is the whole thing about it. Fabulism, I think, is that the mainstream is always looking for a way to legitimize what fantasists do and say to do it without acknowledging it. And calling it um, fabulism, which Bradford Morrow did, 
was one, is one way they do it. They call it slipstream, they call it fabulism, or they call it something, irrealist fictions. They call it, there are a million titles for it. Mm -hmm. um, but to my mind, and that's, I think, problematic to try to strip the people who actually have been writing this from the material that they write so that real writers can write it. I just read a long essay about this, so I'm like all, all up in my grill about this. <laughs> but, um, but, um, but I think specifically in the context of something like this, I would say there is something very particular that goes all the way back to uh, what I think of as the fairy way of writing, the uh, 18th century notion that huh. fantasy had an elevated tone and it had or a mythic tone and uh, uh, that that particular kind of fantasy, a fantasy that harks to either fairy tale or fable or to children's stories um, or to elevated voices is, would be what I call fabulism now. And that's probably a single unit, uh, one person's judgment. Mm -hmm. All right, so in this question, uh, everybody basically used up all my notes. Uh, <laughs> That's what always happens. Yeah. All the questions are gone. In my room this morning, this went amazing. <laughs> so we're going to go off the rails a bit here, and I guess just uh, become more conversational. Um, for me, I've all, I think of fabulism as um, as a form of interstitial fiction. So it is um, it's a genre that mixes the other genres. So I kind of see the three holy genres, fantasy, science fiction, and horror. And when we get, the interstitial fiction is that area of each genre that mixes the other two together. So you, you take horror to out and mix it with science fiction and fantasy, you get the weird. You take slipstream out, mix it with horror, and which one am I starting with fantasy? And science fiction, you get slipstream, and then fabulism would be uh, the extension of fantasy. Hmm. What a, so we kind of come to the same place from three different directions. Um, what interests me, though, is how that, uh, that place, that interstitial place, reflects back on the primary genre that it comes from. Um, like what does it, well, I don't know, this is, this is something that's really been in my head a lot lately. I've been thinking about, I'm really, these terms are starting to get more and more loose to me as we yeah. go on. Yeah. And uh, I'm trying to make sense of it, as I assume other people are as well. Just, this is what happens when I don't have notes. I just start to ramble. <laughs> um, but what do we, how do we feel about how fantasy or these interstitial modes reflect back on the primary genres? Are they even still part of those genres? Since I'm starting from the notion that fabulism is a sort of um, distilled fantasy, it's hard because it doesn't seem interstitial to me. Um, it seems it may have it has realist and irrealist elements, but so I, I'm having a hard time. Oh, I was just going to say this um, definition works very well for kids, but not very well for me. Right. <laughs> but it doesn't work very well for kids either. It's funny, isn't it? It's more like um, it's more like an ad attitudinal phrase than a definitional phrase. We can't. Uh, Simon, Simon says, uh, use the word precise in there at the beginning, a precise definition, but I really doubt that we can get any precise definition that can apply to any more than one case because everybody comes at it in a different way. It's the way we aerate, I like the word elevate, somebody else used, 
uh, realism, or what we take to the, what we take to be realism, which sometimes is poverty-stricken, or or less generous, less luxurious than uh, than it might be. Um, when, but there, 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 there are a million different ways to open up the fabric and let, uh, let everything find a new um, uh, contour. Um, I've, I'm thinking of Stephen Milhauser, a writer that I hope you know, brilliant, brilliant writer, works at Swarthmore, published like 10 books of short stories, several novels, he won the Pulitzer Prize once for a great novel called Martin Dressler. Um, his work, seems I at first blush to be located in the real in what we call the real world but 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 when you look into that world it's filled, filled with moving automata with people who appear in mirrors with, with figures that pop up on suburban streets and institute disorder and suicide with a with uh, inexplicable crazes of laughter and tears amongst high school students in other words it's um it doesn't take the ground rules as previously established. Milhauser says uh, over and over, I don't know why you don't think that what I write is realistic. Because to me, every single word of this stuff is, is realistic. Uh, that's the best thing I ever heard said about <laughs> this definition because, of course, once you get a pencil in your hand or once you sit in front of that screen, it's all up to you. I think Milhouse is a great example, uh, especially the extending uh, from the sort of the, the starting place, the wellspring or whatever that, that Simon's referring to. Uh, you know, Martin Dressler strikes me as a book that's very much grounded in this sort of this early 20th century world of New York, and um, it extends from there into a fabulous place. Whereas some of his other stories, like the, the novella that he came out with around 2000 or so, a Midsummer, I, I think, hmm. constant dreamlike feel throughout it. Uh, and although it is very, you know, taking place in sort of this suburban landscape and kids wandering around at night and getting, getting out and playing pranks and whatnot, uh, it, it does constantly have, to me when I'm reading it, this feel of something separated from reality. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think that, that, you know, he springs from that source and goes there, but I, I think he wrestles uneasily with uh, the, the chains of um, categories the way that all of us have been uh, up here. Uh, yeah. Read. Um, I've been sitting here uh, thinking about, um, uh, about categories, especially um, fabulist and magical realism. Those two, I still can't, <laughs> yeah. I can't see a difference between the two. Um, two points. The, the first is, I'm thinking of the first time I heard the label fabulous is when um, uh, Nello Hopkinson came out with an anthology called uh, Whispers, I wrote it down here, Whispers of the Cotton Tree Root. And that was like, I don't know, sometime in the early 2000s. And I remember reading it, and it was like, it was Caribbean literature. And I read it, and I'm like, okay, 
there, there are two ways to look at this. Um, okay, I don't, and I, I remember thinking that I don't understand what fabulism is because, like, there are two ways of thinking about this. There are, this is Caribbean literature that's coming from a particular worldview. So this could be either just realism or, <laughs> and then I wondered, why is this not magical realism? Um, what makes something magical realism? What makes something fabulous? And then I threw it all out because labels, like, thinking about labels just feels often like a, an exercise in, in futility to me. Um, and so that brings me to my other point. Um, how, do, how do categorizing things like, uh, especially with magical realism and fabulous literature, how does that take in the, how does that take in different worldviews? Um, and, and I've kind of just made this point. So if, if one group of people has a worldview where the mystical and the mundane coexist, which is the, which is the culture that I come from, that's realism. Mm. You know, so how does, how does you know, when, when it's called magical realism or even fantasy or fabulism, what point of view is that coming from? So these are, these are things that, this is why, like, these, these categories often just don't fit with me. They don't, like, um, the only way I can rectify them is by separating them of, okay, this is not taking this worldview into consideration, so this is what they mean, and then, okay, so if you're from this worldview, then you have to look at it from this angle. So it gets very, um, it gets very networky and, and confusing and, and, and complex. And so, and then it all falls apart. So yeah, that's, that's really the, Difficulty that I'm having with with like coming coming um, settling on okay this is what this is I think it really depends on what your worldview is. I think the first time I heard the the, the fabulous thing um, because I, I'm old enough I was writing a long time ago and um, I was writing what we had no vocabulary for and people would say, well, she writes magical realist mm -hmm. stuff and people mm -hmm. would say, she can't, she's American. <laughs> and then there was a brief moment when they flirted with the notion that there was such a thing as American magical realism mm -hmm. and so yeah, I was an American magical realist. And when they came up with this, and fabulous was used for anybody who is not Latino or Latina who is writing magical realism oh, wow. with some exceptions. You know, so some people got buys, like Italo Calvino gets a buy. Um, but, but there was a lot of sort of, uh, so, so there was a real sense that magical realism was uh, geopolitically um, centered and that you could write the exact same stuff, but it was not the same if you were not from there. How would you categorize Alice Hoffman, though? Yeah. Because she's a, to me, she's well, I, she's a magical realist, yeah. but she's American. Yeah, but. I mean, I think that, I think you're onto something when you talk about the notion of when uh, the worldview yeah. of the author. But then we're getting into author intent. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like when the worldview mm -hmm. of the author embraces a real what what consensual or conventional reality considers re irreal elements, mm -hmm. um, then. Then is it, yeah, it's confusing. Yeah. Why uh, this is a conversation that is often best had with like bourbon and a Yeah, over, over time. <laughs> right. There is also the matter of what happens to terms like this over time. Magical realism was a very hot number. It was on the hit parade in the 60s when there were writers who really were magical realists. They, they were part of Le Boom or El Boom, uh, or yes. sorry, very much. Uh, and 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 they were they were really really exciting. They were identifiable, uh, and there were only about six of them anyhow. 
Um, by now, at this point, all these years later, yeah. it's, 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 I think it's almost empty and I think it's also tired. It's something we can stick like a label on something. Something passes our by on the moving uh, belt and we say, oh yeah, magical realism, that'll do. Um, when Delia Sherman and Ellen Kushner started talking about their work as slipstream, I don't think they meant something very, very different. The kind of stories they wrote are, are, are to my mind, some, something like what Kidge was alluding to. There are fairy elements. Um, if the same label is to be applied to me, as it seldom is actually, uh, that none of that works. I, I, I wouldn't touch a fairy with a, with a pole with a spear on the end, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, I told you about him. <laughs> this poor creature is a bay, actually, I think. And um, I don't know what she's doing in prison here. Uh, I, I don't know if I have much else to say except that we make up our own definitions to justify what we're doing as we go along. And, and I'm, I'm always happy in almost every circumstance to look at things on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. Instead, uh, what Nettie is saying makes perfect sense because it is related to a certain rich, specific culture that has a point of view very different from our own, of course. We can learn from such things, and we can be entertained and moved by, by stories like that. Um, and I like anything. I like realism, uh, and I think it's it's been a rich, you know, vital current in literature. Anything that incorporates Middlemarch and Bleak House, and 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 The Great Gatsby, is a hell of a a category, you know, but it's not the it's not the only one. And I like in my own work. I think I like to leave a trapdoor open where truly irrational and unbelievable things do seem to happen, um, which threatens the solidity of the ground under m many of the characters. Well, I'm also thinking in terms of categorization and that a lot of times it's a marketing tool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for instance, for some reason, Toni Morrison isn't mm -hmm. considered a magical mm -hmm. realist, mm -hmm. even though she has ghosts and crap yeah. in there. Mm -hmm. Ghosts and, you know, and, um, and it doesn't make any sense to me why she isn't sort of in that, in that area. Some people self-select out of it, like, I'd say, well, Margaret Atwood isn't actually a magical realist, but she has, you know, does genre work, but she calls herself, no, it's not genre work, yeah. it's well, something else. Her attitude changes, too, she'll be, yeah. um, and I think this is yeah. part of, uh, of the issue that, that anybody who's working in a genre uh, deals with, that, that it's always moving, we're always in a complicated relationship because we're always having somebody say, and I use romance as an example a lot, you know, if you're a romance writer, everybody's like, oh, romances. And you're like, yeah, fucking Jane Austen, people. But at the same time, people are like, oh, romances, so you must write like Harlequin. And science fiction and weird fiction and all these other fictions, that's what happens. You must be writing according, uh, 
the standards of our genres are generally the lowest exemplars, whereas the mm. standards of mainstream fiction are usually held up as the highest. Mm. Yeah. So if you are trying to write at the mm. highest level, or if you are writing at the highest level, then you've got a situation where, of course, she's, uh, Toni Morrison isn't writing genre literature because she's too good yeah. to be a genre writer. That's it. So she's think? considered to be beyond that category, yes. yeah. which yeah. is which is again, you know, a pure case by case exception. Uh, uh, an aura sur surrounds Toni Morrison, and that aura would be insulted by assigning her to a you know simple category like magical realism. Also, it doesn't make sense mm -hmm. uh, to me anyhow. Uh, see, it doesn't matter what we call her anyhow. All these things are it's late. But one of the things that I think is interesting is that, at least to me, there's a clear demarcation between someone like Ben Oakry yeah. and Kelly Link. Mm -hmm. It seems yeah. that their 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 aims are completely sure. different. Mm -hmm. um, the Famished Road. I, you could read it as a fantasy novel, but it really isn't, even though it's very deeply enriched with magic. But with Kelly Lynx, it's almost like she's looking at reality and just sort of twisting it a little here, a little there. Yeah. And it's a different uh, application of, of the magic. Mm -hmm. in, in Famished Road, though, a lot of the things that you see in there are things that people actually believe in. Like, you know, you've got the masquerades and the Obanje, which is the main character, is, I could, there's a lot to explain with that, but people believe, believe in those, like staunchly believe in those. So, so I mean, that might be something that makes it different. And, and this is where it gets fuzzy. Mm -hmm. It gets really fuzzy because some of those things that, that people believe in, when other people read about them, it just comes across as, total fantasy like mm -hmm. famished road is a is a great example that can be read as fantasy that could be read as 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 the a type of book that where there's just magical and mystical thing there are magical and mystical things that are just bursting from, within every page you know with with great great energy um, i highly recommend famished road by the way ben okri read that yeah since we're talking about specific books, uh, what came to my mind just now as Nettie was speaking about Ben Oakery is the, is the odd and rather enigmatic John Crowley novel called The Translator. It was what he published after the quartet, and I think I was certainly wondering what in the world he would do next, and many people were wondering. And it seemed to be a novel about a Russian poet who has uh, relocated to Princeton and whose work is given to us in a brilliant um, uh, strategy by John Crowley only in translation. So we, we can't, we can't say this guy is never going to win a Nobel Prize with rubbish like that uh, because it's, rubber, it's a genius in Russian and kind of a little mediocre but okay in English. Um, and there's a, there's a slight romantic angle, there's, there's, there's all kinds of stuff. It's a beautiful, rather um, still water kind of novel, except way at the end, and this is something that seems perhaps to pervade the novels of future, uh, the, the novels of whole. Everything in the book can be seen uh, in, in, a, in, in a manner that incorporates the operations of angels. And perhaps this translator herself is an angel sent from angelic realms to um, 
to affect, to you know, create effects here um, 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 among us. Um, I, I mean that that I I I like that as a model case for uh, fabulism. I don't think anybody would call it magic realism, really, because the angelic stuff isn't presented um, in the day-to-day -day surface of the book. But it's uh, it's 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 a way to keep things open while not being flagrant about the violations you are doing to realistic norms. And, okay. It's funny, I mean, I spend my days as a librarian helping people find things. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, increasingly tools, whether they're sort of web search engines or um, various sort of high-end library search tools, can find things with increasingly fuzzy parameters. Uh, <laughs> uh, so if, if you type in natural realism, fabulism, uh, you, you might get some things back. But at the root of all of them, in most libraries, why? Um, a more or less rigid set of classifications uh, describing what a work is. Maybe a few genre descriptors, but um, the jumping back and forth between them are the things that we often like to play with, I think, uh, and we simply tell our stories regardless of where they fall in a library catalog or for the publishers out there on the spine tables, I guess. Uh, so I, I feel some sympathy with our readers trying to figure out uh, find what they're looking for given that you're not generally going to find Stephen Melhauser housed right next to Kelly Link, right next to um, maybe John Crowley, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but we all, I, I think, seem to feel some, some kinship there. Yeah, I mean, for, uh, I was thinking, I know genre is, uh, we talk about genre a lot in terms of commercial categories, but and how uh, useless they are. But for me, it's always appeared that I was thinking genre more in a critical way, where we're using these terms not to, not to prescribe how fiction is, but to, to describe the, the different waves and different um, threads that are going through the different, uh, through the different, the different fields. So I think from the writer perspective, it's all, it's all everything's fair game, at least I think. There are writers who are concentrating just on that entertainment, just the, the for lack of a better term, the lower level. But um, writers who are trying to expand more the, the field, uh, they, uh, they mix everything together. And the problem is, I guess, every, everybody wants, in fact, Peter said, wants to define what they're doing now. So these terms just keep coming out of nowhere to describe things that, that have existed for forever. What I want to go is if this, if this changing, this mixing of the different threads that we're seeing, is this the constant uh, evolution of, of genre and of fiction? Is it its own thing, or is, it, is this just showing us where genre, for example, might be in, in 10 years? Hmm. <laughs> uh, given, I mean, you know, we're here uh, in Hong Kong, sort of weird fiction always has these struggles to define itself and what it is and what it isn't. And, you know, 20 years or so ago, there was this new weird thing, this moment that may or may not have been a moment. Uh, and earlier this year, uh, a writer reviewer, uh, Paul Simpson Macintosh, wrote a lengthy review of Shadows and Tall Trees, and it's going and talking about what exactly uh, it, it is. And, 
uh, people struggled to describe what's going on. He just sort of went right down the middle of the sword and cut the Gordian knot and just said, it's new weird, all of it. Uh, and this is, on one hand, maybe me, it's a flavor of misuse of the label, but uh, there's a certain pleasure, I think, in just calling something a thing and appreciating it for the quality and not fighting so hard about the taxonomy. Well, one of the things that I'm thinking about, particularly in this particular section of the genre, is where exactly fabulism and dark fiction fit. I mean, I remember when, well, I wasn't born then, but I remember when um, people were saying that Shirley Jackson's uh, The Haunting of Hill House was not a ghost story. It was a intense psychological blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You know, and I read the book and I'm like, there's ghosts in there. <laughs> but, uh, but there's a way that people, sort the mainstream read it, saying, no, it's just a psychological thriller. Um, there's, uh, I'm also thinking about uh, Ackman or Aikman yeah, set up, Aikman. And, and it's hard to sit up and say what, he calls it strange tales, but you could make an argument that it's sort of dark fabulism, because it, sometimes what happens is very, you know, it's like zzz, eep, you know, it's just like one little bit blip on the monitor rather yeah. than... Um, or it's a stained mood. Yeah, there's right. something that I'm uh, thinking about sort of uh, the, uh, how classifications meld and stuff. And I just read something and I cannot remember anything about it except the idea. But it was a great idea. Um, the idea, they were talking about how all art forms, basically new movements, start um, through sort of two things. Either the um, elevation of a popular form um, or hybridization. Uh, so you, uh, the, the novel comes from uh, like uh, highwayman narratives, which is why so many Defoe things are about highwaymen and you know, uh, prostitutes and, and people of low and sketchy morals because it was already a tradition of, of these, these recountings of highwaymen's tales and the Newgate calendars and stuff. So, so thinking about that, I mean, part of why it's changing is that, that that's what we do. We, every writer sits down and says, sometimes explicitly, you know what needs to happen? We need a crossover of 19th century children's stories with uh, Wild West. Uh, that's what we need. Uh, <laughs> the world did not know it. And occasionally these things will rise up and become movements of their own. So the notion of this kind of, um, what was, would once have been all categorized as magical realism, but is now broken into all these different categories, was, was sort of the, uh, the hybridization of high literary techniques with fantasy elements, which by definition removed it from the elevated language that was specific to fantasy before that, the early 20th century. There is a class of being who never think in these terms at all, and those beings are called publishers. Uh, yeah. At the back of every work of fiction, there are two doors. I'm just, I offer this to you in the hopes that you will all write it down and, and forget it as soon as possible. One door leads to the author who is just cooking, who's saying, oh my God, I know, an angel comes in, a fairy comes in, a river springs up in the middle of the room, and everybody has to deal with that, and so-and-so drowns, you know. And, and so he goes and writes this crazy-ass thing full of all sorts of adventures and uh, impossible events. Through the other door, 
lies the publisher, who is looking at the manuscript and saying, what the yes. fuck do we call this? Exactly. I know. <laughs> yes. We're yes. going to say it's yes. uh, fairy tale magical realism. Uh, you know, just stick some term on it, because all of these terms are thought of at some level in some places as marketing terms. They're not seen as literary terms. They're about where you put the books in the bookshelves and who reviews them. Um, you can you can elevate or or make uh, put put on the street level and any work of fiction by 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 uh, on, on the grounds of who reviews it, you know, and, and what their attitude is, what their stance is toward the kind of thing that they are reading. Uh, the whole the you know the the, the whole. Uh, theme of what sort of word is stamped on the cover of the novel? Uh, a fantasy, a thriller. Nobody ever says a magical realism novel because I would stump us. Because in America we're stone stupid and we forget everything that happened 15 years ago. Uh, so, 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 so that one wouldn't work. But it's not, you know. And there's the writer with his, uh, with his ideas and his exhaustion and his imagination, and there's the publisher at some level is always washing blood off his hands. <laughs> it was a pity about him, you know? But uh, he just wasn't cutting it anymore, and uh, goodbye. <laughs> oh, can I um, oh, yeah. add a little, a little bit to that? Um, <laughs> and also, if the publishers can't figure out how to categorize something, they often will reject it. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. and this is like and this is something I can speak to because that happened to me especially early on in my career. And this is part of why I rail so much against categorization mm -hmm. because I had two novels that I, that I wrote before the first one that I had published, which were you know I'm I'm that writer who's in there just doing whatever and not thinking about okay what is this. I just, you know, I just do what I do, and then whatever comes, comes. And so I had written these two novels, and these are at two different times, where the first one, they couldn't figure, and these were, these were top publishers. It would get past the editor, who would love it, and then when it would get to the people, the money people, they were like, mm -hmm. um, for the first one, they were like, okay, we don't know if this character is African or African-American. We're rejecting it. So that happened over and over and over again. They all said the same thing. And then the second one was, oh, we don't know if this is fantasy or literary fiction. That's right. And then it was rejected over and over again because they couldn't categorize it. And that is very problematic to me because um, I, I think a good story is a good story. If you, uh, it, I don't really, I don't really see why um, not being able to call it something should cause it to be rejected. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, that happens to be. Uh, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> to me, that that is uh, that is inspired by fear. Yeah. Publishers, you know, the, yeah. the, the world of publishers knew disappeared five, six years ago, and they don't know how to deal with the terrain they're in. They're, they've got to be very, they think they've got to be very cautious, conservative, and careful about the kind of labels they put on things. They don't want to confuse the poor readership that never buys mass market paperbacks anymore, that squanders a lot of money buying ebooks, meaning nobody gets any money. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, so you've got to sell hardbacks to, uh, to have an income. Um, and all, all these factors, unfortunately, do come into play, uh, bedeviling 
new writers as Nettie was once who, who confound them. You know? Yes. What do we call it? So we can't call it anything. We can't publish it. Yeah. Well, I, I, but that's a lot older than the last five years mm-hmm. because I worked in publishing a long time ago for my sins. Mm-hmm. And um, sorry. Uh, but, uh, but, Don't worry. but yeah, I, I think that that's always been true. And in fact, there's more room for it now. Um, yeah, there's more room for you to write yeah. a book that has. Blue-esque elements mm-hmm. and comedy than there would have been yes. 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, there's more room for hybrids of science fiction and fantasy. There's, I mean, the world is changing, mm-hmm. and there yeah. are various reasons why it's happening. But that also happened to me, mm-hmm. um, and it's happened as recently as last year, and it's happened as long as long ago as 30 years ago that I've written stuff that I could not get published because they were like, we do not know where to put it. Yeah. And that one of them, the last time this happened, um, they asked what my demographic, what my demographic was. And I was like, I don't know, people like me. You know, people who, who are like me. Because yeah. there must be more than just me. Um, but that's not a demographic, it turned out. <laughs> the, next step is, the next step is they ask for the credit card numbers of all your best friends. Right. People you can guarantee are going to buy the book. This is why small presses have, have, have become even stronger and more numerous than they were before, because you can, get, you can find yourself in a position where nobody's going to buy your book, but some good small press publisher will if it's good. And therefore, we have this uh, very different landscape. Um, one more point that I want to make is also about academia as well. <laughs> and categorization. Um, and this is another, per- I wish I had known about, um, about the, the category of fabulous literature, because uh, I could have used it in academia, because uh, in, in, I, I, I had to deal with a lot of snobbery for sci- against science fiction and fantasy. A lot of it, I dealt with it sure. for, let's see, my two masters and PhD, like all along the way, I had to deal with that. Um, I, the, the biggest example was um, during my PhD, I took a novel writing workshop, and at the very beginning, the professor said, who also went on to be my advisor, the professor said, no one in this class is to write any fantasy or science fiction. Like, flat out said it. And in my head, I, because there's a very trickster part of me, so in my head, I I was like, okay, I I was working on um, an apocalyptic um, an apocalyptic novel set in a future Niger, where where magic comes back to the world. This was what I was working on, and, and you know what I did? I, I just slapped the label magical realism on it. Yeah. I said, "This is magical realism," and it was fine. Yeah. And it was fine. Isn't that interesting? I will always remember that. Yeah, That's yeah. Something. I learned early to manipulate these manipulate labels in academia because like magical realism is okay um, science fiction and fantasy was not okay that key will never open those yeah. doors magical realism key we'll just there. slides right in yes. because they understand first, they respect it yes. my first answer to the question of what fantasy fabulism was is it is the code that we use mm. my student when I get yeah. applicants into the program the code they use to say, I want to write science fiction, but I cannot get out through the gate. Mm. Um, they use fabulous. Yes. And as soon as you talk to them, it's like they wrote, they peel the skin back. Like, they're just like unrepentant, you know, military fiction <laughs> writers or high fantasists or something. 
But but that is the that is the word that allows fantasy people to get to get in. Yes, we see it in job job interviews. We see it in CVs. We see it in applications. (laughs) And it's actually kind of and it's maddening because fabulism should mean something very Mm -hmm. specific. Mm -hmm. It should mean more than just I want to work on something strange. Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to get into this program. I really, I, I feel that's a really, uh, really great take because I, I kind of the same thing. We see you right where I work, you know, working with the creative writing students, uh, with the undergrad and graduate. Talk to them, all of them, all of them who have any interest in fabulous romantic realism. Scratch me at the surface, and they're super excited about contemporary and historical nonfiction. Really, truly, 100 uh, percent. And you know, you know, in one of the classes over, over there, the new the shoulder slipstream people like grasp for these words just not to have to say yes yeah. yeah and that's been part of my stance all along is that I was I decided when I went into academia which I didn't start till I was 50 I said I'm going to be an unrepentant genre writer and it actually was a barrier it actually yeah. was a barrier I had nebula of words on a shelf and it was a barrier to getting a job sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they don't like that they didn't like it <laughs> no. yeah. Of course, the last one had been sparse, so. <laughs> I did read an, an, an interview with a, a very serious um, woman writer in her 50s in the, in the New York Times in that column in, in which uh, the, uh, the columnist talks to writers about what they're reading. And this woman, who was a brilliant person and a very, very good writer, I, I wish I could remember her name, um, said that she read everything, really, and she loved fiction. And then she said, but I hate lazy, sloppy genre writing. I don't know why anybody would waste their time writing a novel like that when they could write a real novel. Oh, yes, when I used bad. to read things like bad. that, I yes. first go into rage, then do a depression, and then, and then <laughs> put on my armor, you know? <laughs> be, be, because it's a, it's, a, it's a reflex. It isn't thought. It isn't considered. It's just, oh, yeah, I know. This. There's this wall, and out there are the wild savages that uh, we, with whom we ha- have no commerce. You know, it's just a, you have to, you have to uh, work your way case by case, one by one, un- under their eye, and then say, by the way, I'm one of those people you, you think of as savages. Well, um, this is just sort of... Since we're talking about categorization, one of the things I always thought was funny was there's a way in which Morrison's Beloved could be a horror novel. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I'm thinking yeah. about, you know, if it were published in the 70s and she was unknown, it would have that font that looks like blood. And it would say, she came from beyond the grave. She was dot, 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 beloved. <laughs> I, I had a lot of those jackets. <laughs> and they sold a lot of books. You know, they did, it, as disgusting and, and crude as they were, they did, uh, they did some writers some good. Questions? Oh, moderator? Yeah, it's about time. Now that you ruined all my questions. Um, I talk a lot with people about genre and about how I'm a, I'm a horror writer, I've, I've embraced that term. But for me, horror is not, it's not a genre, it's a mode, is what I like to say. Yeah. So yeah. It's, a, it's a lens through which I see sure. the world, and I can write anything, and it's still, to me, it's still it's a horror story, even if there's no traditionally 
horrific elements. Gee, that's not familiar. <laughs> um, what I think, though, is that one of the things I argue, when, one of the problems I have arguing that with people is when I say horror, much like the publishers, they see the box, they see the, the marketing box. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my contemporaries don't want to use the term because they don't want to be associated with that box. Whereas I'm arguing by using the term, we're going to try and take it back and embrace it. I don't know whether that's a realistic thought. And I know the, in, in ideal world, the publishers would agree with that and start taking chances because I think there's a lot of opportunity out there that's going to the small press, but the authors aren't getting paid for it very well. Um, I got great starts, I don't have great endings. <laughs> much like my fiction. Um, so I, I don't know if uh, we have about 10 minutes left or five minutes left. I don't know if anyone wants to, to talk about how they feel about that disparity between genre and, um, and whether there's any value, I guess, in those terms. I don't understand that question. <laughs> well, I actually published a novel that was a young adult novel, and for some reason it won the award for like urban fiction. And I didn't, I was like, I mean, I took the award. <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm thinking particularly that that means something, that's coded for something else. And I think it was coded because the character was black. Uh. And, but I didn't really consider it to be an urban story. So I believe that, that sort of genre labels are sort of, they're useless. That's very funny you should say that because it almost implies that black people exist only in exactly. certain places in the world. <laughs> Have you ever seen that thing on TV? It's a, it's a, a guy made a, like a YouTuber with this. A black hand appears beneath a soap dispenser. Nothing comes out. He takes a towel out of the towel dispenser. He puts a towel in it. The towel is white. Oh, soap God. comes out. <laughs> and then he says, see? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> Go home. <laughs> I guess we can open up to questions. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. How many can I have? One question and then we'll circle around. What do you each think that the author's intention has to do with the appropriate label for the work? Oh, God, that's it, yeah. I mean, I think it's, I don't think the author's intention has anything to do with the labels, unfortunately. Um, but I also think it's, I mean, for a lot of us, it's like when we're writing, it's like, what's my label? I, you know, um, so I, I feel as though author intent shows in the book she writes. But, but beyond that, you know, once it gets out of her hands and they start putting covers on it and putting, like, the, the horror sticker at the bottom or something. I mean, do I think it matters? Uh, yes, but I don't think that what I feel has anything to do with what's going to happen. There are mystery writers 
who say to themselves with, with uh, every bit of their heart in it, I want to write cozies. Yeah. I want to write novels in which the uh, uh, detective is a woman in her 70s who owns a cat who makes excellent tea, whose best friend is this <laughs> and that. And, and in other words, I accept the restrictions put upon me and I'm going to find gold in those restrictions. For most people, most people who begin at the start by accepting restriction restrict their work, and 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 they don't allow themselves the imaginative expansions of what happen if if you perhaps foolishly want to apply the label later. Uh, I would say it's a very very bad move, very ill advised to say to yourself, okay, now I'm going to write a horror novel. Uh, I know, if you were smart, you'd say, I want to write a 1980s horror novel <laughs> with a band of children. <laughs> say no more. Uh, I, don't think any, I don't think any author that you uh, look up to and that you you respect or model yourself after started writing in the genre you think they're in. Yeah. I mean, they thought of themselves as writing in the, the Stranson genre, or the, the Straw genre, or the Johnson genre, etc. It's nice, isn't it? Most, most good writers do define their own genres, uh, and the genre is known by their name. Yeah. Um, uh, the other kinds of labels are applied only later. I will say though that, like on the flip side of things, like I, I never think of category when I'm when I'm writing, mm-hmm. um, but I have had categories that are applied to things that I have written that I completely disagree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and two examples I can think of. Uh, <laughs> Who Fears Death is often called a young adult novel. Uh-huh. And when I hear that, I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, just what the hell are you talking about? I'll leave it at that. Uh-huh. Um, that makes no sense to me. I can understand why young adults would enjoy reading it. That I get. That I get. My 12-year-old read Who Fears Death cover to cover in one week, and she is not a big reader. She loved that. So I get that. I understand that. We had to have a lot of talks while she was reading that. I was very uncomfortable with that. I did not want that to happen when it happened. Okay, so let me just make that that clear. And then also... there was one time where my novel Lagoon was labeled as young adult as well, which makes no sense because it's not young adult. So it's like, you know, this is an alien invasion in Lagos um, narrative with lots of violence and politics and all of these things. It's not a young adult book. So, so there are times where, you know, I, I've been labeled as something that I don't agree with. But normally, you know, I'll write something like, like um, the novel that I just wrote, I don't know what the hell it is. I don't know if it's young adult or adult. I don't really know what it is. I don't know if it's fantasy, science fiction, whatever. I'm letting my publishers figure that out. Um, and, and I'm fine with that. I, I typically will just go with what what people call me, but there will be times where in my head I'm thinking, no, it's not. That's that's yeah. that's not what I Why YA is a particularly yeah. distressing one because yeah. it implies you're not good enough to be adult. Yeah. You know yeah. You are complicated enough. You're not complicated yeah. enough. Yeah. On the other hand, you can have all the murders, abortions, kidnappings, you know, strangulations, and, it, and still have a YA. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's a very big category. <laughs> I think the people who are selling the book are generally have the expertise in figuring out what, 
what's going to get into people's hands. Uh, that's, that's the thing that I personally care about more. But at the same time, categories can affect people's expectations, yeah. and that can be a problem. Yeah. You know, when, when they expect something and then they get something else, then they're pissed about the fact that, okay, right, I thought right. this was this, and therefore it's bad, which I don't know why right. people view things in that way, but I've seen that a lot, and mm -hmm. that can be problematic. Um, so kind of uh, circling back to the fabulous you covered earlier. So with the uh, stories like uh, Ursula P. Burns, like Jack Book Wives, and before that, the Sherman's um, uh, Fiddler by Tesh, uh, do you feel as though, to a certain extent, like theme and plot can play into what fabulism is now in the sense that it's embracing mythologies different than the ones that we just eat for breakfast, you know, the, the Campbellian heroes in the journey that, that uh, is there, is there a dimension of fabulism that embraces fables that we don't see all the time, but that are still very real and still kind of inform cultural expectations? Hmm. I hope so. I'm so I, I zoned out a little bit in the Sorry. question. Can you repeat the question one yeah, more time? Because I think I can. That, that um, I guess, fundamentally, is, is a dimension of fabulism as it exists now as a published form. Does it uh, hinge on exploring mythologies that are different from kind of mainstream uh, Camp Valley mythologies that are kind of put more centrally in, in a lot of, you know, novels that, that depend on protagonists uh, following a pretty specific path uh, that are, is a new fabulism finding different paths of characters like uh, well, I think it's a complicated question, and I'm not sure I follow it either, but, but I'm going to take a stab at it. Um, because I think that there are different parts to it. One of them is, are we dealing with you know, the classic Greco-Roman mythology, or are we straying out into wilder shores, perhaps? Um, but that's been going on for a long time. Um, that's been going on since the 80s, since Terry Wendling. Um, but if you're talking about, is it possible to write a piece of true fabulism that is not rooted in some Campbellian-ish, you know, because Campbellian myth is, I mean, that's, that's a kind of muzzy statement too. But, but can you write a story that is truly fabulism, that is not based in a fable that we, that, that is traceable to, to somewhere? Um, and the answer is, I think so. I, I mean, I've written, I wrote a story which just died the death of a thousand no-reads, um, which was me attempting to create a new creation myth, like build a creation myth from whole cloth, not drawn from any existing stuff. And that was a very specific intellectual engagement with um, the notion of fable and fabulism. And I found it, I think it's possible, I mean, but, one of the questions is why doesn't it happen more often? It's because it's really hard, turned out. <laughs> and nobody liked it. So. <laughs> it's hard to write good books. Um, can I give two, two examples of what I think are um, fabulous works that probably aren't often considered fabulous works? Um, the, okay, so The Palm Wine Drinkard <laughs> by Amos Tutola. And then The Forest of a Thousand Demons by D.O. Uh, Fagunwa, which is spelled F-A-G-U-N-W-A. Huh. Yeah. Put those on the list. Sound good. Uh, yeah. we're, uh, we're starting to see some, some novels recently that successfully reference fable like uh, Victor LaBelle's The Changeling or Cat Howard's Roses and Rod, which has a lot to say about artists and motives in the context of the fable. 
And uh, you've spoken a lot about genre, but where fable precedes all genre and is, is a root of, of the horror genre, um, what do you think we get from fables that is vital, apart from the uh, fantastic uh, aspect? And do you sense that there's a, a resurgent thirst for that now? What time is it? It's five and ten. Yeah. Okay, ten or four. What more can you Go ahead. Oh, no. Do you have? Tap dancing desperately. Yeah. Yeah. So you're asking about resurgence of fabulism or fables, whether or not there's something. Yes. I mean, like all tales that have been worn smooth by voices and hands and eyes looking at it, there's always some relevance, something interesting going on. I would. I would um, take issue with the notion that this is a new research. It's always going on. It's just like it's not always foregrounded. You know, so there's always somebody writing stories based on folklore and fable and fairy tale and stuff. There's always somebody doing that. My most recent uh, publication actually is I decided to do the. Remember when myth punk was a thing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I did a myth yeah. punk Uncle Remus tale. <laughs> You're so, bad. Yeah. <laughs> so and and you know I wanted to do it without the, you know the Joel Chandler Harris mm-hmm. versions <laughs> used like that old fashioned dialect, yeah, you yes. know that I. <laughs> <laughs> So. It's funny how yeah. dialect has completely changed. It just spun on its axis. Yeah. It used to mean you had a good ear, and now it means yeah. you're hopelessly racist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so, in the course of this conversation, uh, technology kind of came up. Kate, you mentioned it, and John, um, the, the, the library's computer brain being able to kind of uh, get a little uh, more abstract. Um, a couple of years ago, I saw Charles Yu speak at the Center for Fiction on a panel about science fiction and how that term is now, the, the vagueness of that term. And he made an observation that I found kind of inspiring, but also disturbing, which that thanks to Amazon's uh, mysterious algorithm, John, for, he felt his genre was being or demolishing his categorization was irrelevant because, you know, if you click on his book based on your search history, you get to see what other people buy. Mm-hmm. And it seemed, uh, yeah. that website, that corporation, in my mind, is horrifying and bad in so many ways, but there is something, <laughs> like, very interesting about the like, most this weirdly personal way that you get to then mm-hmm. almost uh, sort of bypass all, uh, all labels because it's based on if you bought a book and if you happen to read it or read it on their site, then you can like it connects you with other people. And so I wonder that is that these are ongoing discussions, but that example in particular seems to have usurped the discussion in a sense. I wonder if technology can be used in, in a good sense. I, I, mean, I again, I gotta say it's not gonna be from them, but like, is there a way like? The small presses are kind of an example of how, thanks to the internet, they connect in a certain way, but like, can, can we use these new tools to almost render this ongoing debate irrelevant and connect our, like, connecting communities in a sense, or is this just the same conversation um, but with a different sort of gloss? It would never have occurred to me to think about that kind of thing, but, but it, what I like about it, though I don't like it at all, what I like about it is that it is based, unlike everything else we've said and everything else we're going to say, it is based on hard data. 
It's based on actual information. If, if you make the error of checking out your reader reviews on Amazon, <laughs> down at the bottom you see what other books Amazon thinks are like yours. It's always this dreadful shock to the soul. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. People who buy John Saul yeah. actually buy me. <laughs> <laughs> well, then they're uh, they're out for a delightful surprise. Don't you? <laughs> that way, yeah. they're about to get the, their socks. Oh, the poor dears. I think about it all day long. Honestly, like professionally, like, that's what I do. And uh, I think that relying on what readers are actually reading, if you can find your reader, whether your, your kindred soul, whether that's on Goodreads or, you know, the person who bought Fears Down also really like these things, that's going to be more helpful for you than an Amazon top 100 list that's composed of some crazy mishmash of titles that, that resemble nothing like what you think of as fantasy or magical realism. I have a complex um, relationship to Amazon recommendations. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I don't even know if I want to open this can of worms. <laughs> but when I look at my Amazon recommendations, aside from often being like, okay, there are no similarities between any of these books and, and, and I don't find this helpful because sometimes I'll be like, I'll look at something that I've written and be like, oh, I'd love to read something like this, <laughs> like my own book. And I'll go on there looking and I'm like, I don't find anything. It does not help me. Um, so there's that. Um, what I also tend to find is that my recommendations, and I also see this when I, if I were to Google myself, um, there's de a definite shade <laughs> to <Sort> the recommendations. <laughs> yes. Like uh, there, I when, recommendations for me always tend to be other black authors, like across the board. Um, and I'm not sure, like if we were to use that as a tool for categorization. Um, I think it could be problematic, mm -hmm. and I, and I think about like um, I think about my issues with the, the label of Afrofuturism, for example, mm -hmm. and how I feel like it often just brings together a lot of um, a lot of works of art of like literature, from literature to music to film that. I often feel have nothing to do with each other, mm -hmm. except for that one thing. And so um, I think that that these tools can be, this information can be used, but it needs to be used with caution, if that makes mm -hmm. sense, yeah. Can we got time for one more? Come on, one more, okay. There we go. <laughs> What kinds of things do you think, what are some of the major things you think have changed in the sort of magical realism genre in the last few decades? You know, how is it different today than it was, say, in the 90s and the 70s and the 50s? And what are some, some uh, future trends you see coming up? One thing I always thought about magical realism uh, as of when I read it, and in fact, most fantasy, is there's a sort of truism that a lot of it is essentially nostalgic in that not, not as value, but in that it points backwards in time. It points to the past in the way science fiction points forward. Um, and I feel like that's um, because I think that we engage with the past differently now. I think that's one thing that's changing, is that people who write fabulous fiction now are engaging more with here and now. 
um, maybe than they used to be, and not just by resetting Snow White into the 21st century. I don't really have an answer to that. Yeah. Um, because, you know, who can predict the future? Exactly. And, uh, there, there, there's more. I'm, I'm unhappy with your use of the word magical realism, because, and I will assume that you're, you're using it to, to cover all these kinds of books that, 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 that we're talking about, most of which could be called very loosely defined magical realism. In that case, there's way more of it than there used to be, and more and more really good people, especially good American people, um, amongst other countries, are, are, are writing it very, very well. Just look at the founding and the, and the, 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 the career of the small press, small beer. Kelly started it. Uh, she was very much, I think, looking for work that would, that would be sympathetic to her own, and she found a lot of it, and she has this great list. Every writer begins by saying, I want to write the kind of books I want to read. Mm -hmm. And the reason we say that is that we can't really find them in the world. We have to, uh, we, we have to make up our own library, you know? Um, and the, the libraries represented by uh, Small Beer are particularly inclusive and uh, open-minded, I think. But one thing I would say about the future is that you know if you go to AWP or other sort of gatherings of very sort of literary minded writing program folks, there is this acceptance of folks like you know Karen Russell and Matthew and the work that they create. And at some point that well, even if the acceptance doesn't stop, the moment will pass. at that point, just keep looking further than and that's what I thought <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I figure, I see the changes that we're seeing now coming from, uh, I see a, a greater mix of the different uh, fields and different genres now than we saw before. As time has progressed, I think those walls are really breaking down. Um, and I think that explains why uh, we're seeing it more often now than we saw it in the past. Uh, as for the future, I mean, what I'd like to think is that the internet's going to continue to grow and connect everyone and the different cultures. And we're going to see a greater influence in Western, uh, Western interstitial fiction of non-Western uh, <laughs> modes and, and uh, directions. That's my hope. You know, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have said I'm positive with all the stuff that's been going on uh, lately and the, uh, the rise of and I think there's been some uh, of it for this convention itself. Uh, some arguments about you know, broadening the scope of, of weird fiction. Um, uh, I'm a little less convinced of it, but I, I remain hopeful. I think it's interesting to remember, it's useful to remember, that, that the way we're, the kind of fiction we're talking about is a product of a natural function of the human mind. It occurs to all of us when we're just daydreaming. Um, we like stories that speak to that slightly step to one side uh, way of, of, of seeing things. It does, it does enrich the world, and it enriches the world because the world is already enriched, you know? Um, 
That's all I got. And I just want to say, it's a big world out there. It looks grim here, but it's a big world out there. There's, I'm, I, uh, this year and last year, I made it the year of reading world, world fictions. And um, so I've been reading all kinds of stuff and realizing that there's like vital communities all over the world writing irreal fictions. Um, so, and in some cases, that was always the tradition. And in some cases, it's a thing that they're exploring now for the first time. Um, but it's, uh, I mean, we, we tend to think that what's happening here is what's happening because we're so centric. Um, but actually, it's only part of what's happening. And fiction is going on all over the world right now that is so vital and so exciting. And I've given rants a number of times saying the real energy in science fiction right now is not in the United States. Uh, the presence of Simon on this panel forces me to acknowledge that Canada is a particularly rich source of, of, of this kind of writing. And because we are arrogant, blinkered Americans, we never think of Canada. We don't except, like except, except when we look at comedians. You know? yeah. <laughs> we like to keep well, I'm glad you do. Uh, I wish I did. But I, actually, my I have bookshelves filled with <laughs> works by Canadian writers whom I've blurbed and celebrated. And it's just worth remembering that everything is richer than we think. Well, me, on behalf of Canada, let me just say, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what are you sorry about, Simon? I'm Canadian, that's what I do. <laughs> Being Canadian? That, that, was, that was a perfectly Canadian gesture. Yes. Sure. Um, I guess we're out of time, so let me thank again our panelists. <laughs> Well, that was better than it might have been. Yeah, it was. Yeah. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network. For more gaming related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.